This is the Monday, July 30th, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iArc Radio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the Western Front of the Great War, where we'll enlist with the 60th Battalion of the Canadian Expeditionary Force, which captured the villages of Vimy and Petite Vimy during the fighting for the pivotal Vimy Ridge. This battle has lived on ever since as a Canadian legend, a key moment in their evolution from a territory in the British Commonwealth to an independent nation. But if the name Vimy doesn't ring a bell for you, author Richard Pivas is here to act as our war correspondent, thanks to long-forgotten personal accounts and letters. His book is Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, the story of the Victoria Rifles of Canada, 60th Battalion, in the First World War. Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal compiles material that was slowly dying away as the Great War generation's children and their records faded away. One such story is of Private Charles Henry Mainwaring. Private Mainwaring was the first cousin of my wife Catherine's grandfather. Since Catherine is a genealogist, when Richard Pivas contacted her through Ancestry.com, Their sharing of information steadily led to the interview you're enjoying now. Rick Pivas is an avid historian, and he's a genealogist in his own right. And like Catherine, he hails from the Great White North. He grew up in Montreal, which incidentally is where the Mainwarings called home during the Great War. Though by Catherine's time, the family had migrated to the maritime province of New Brunswick. Richard Pivas holds a Bachelor of Science and a master's in business administration and marketing as graduate of Concordia and McGill universities. His first book, Night Madness, a rear gunner's story of love, courage, and hope in World War II, weaves his father's tale into a touching love story in one man's very personal war. Visit richardpivas.com or follow at richardpivas on Twitter for more on this view of the First World War from the nation Winston Churchill called the Great Dominion. That last name is spelled P-Y-V-E-S. And if you're looking to unlock the war stories written in your DNA helix, you can access Catherine's genealogy services. Just click the words Family History Research under our show logo on any page at historyauthor.com, or you can go directly to historyauthor.com slash familyhistory. Okay. Now that we've boarded our transport headed for the Western Front, let's join Richard Pivas for the 60th Battalion's wartime tales of 
courage, sacrifice, and betrayal. I'm joined on the line by Richard Pivis, author of Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, the story of the Victoria Rifles of Canada, 60th Battalion, in the First World War. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Rick, your first book, Night Madness, drew from a personal source in your father's wartime experience. Walk us through the family germ of inspiration for Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, which drew from your father's father's generation in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that, you know, I really love my grandfather. I also had three sisters, and he's the only grandfather we had because my mom's dad had actually died before we were all born. So we have very fond memories of him. He had a great Geordie accent, and whenever he talked to us, you know, he sounded very English and very sort of different in some ways. And I really wanted to capture his experience, you know, of the war, as well as his fellow soldiers. And when I was a teenager, he actually gave me a book that was uh, just came out actually in 1962 called The uh, Official History of the Canadian Expeditionary Force in World War One. And I was a teen, very impressionable, I guess, at the time, and, and he gave me the book. And I read it through. It was quite heavy reading. It was just hundreds and hundreds of pages, very detailed. But it really piqued my interest, you know, to learn more about the war and more importantly, to learn more about what my grandfather had done. And I think a lot of people share some level of that story where you wonder about what your grandparents went through and you look at the timeline of their life and you say, wow, they lived through this war, the Great Depression, or my grandparents' case lived through the expulsion by the Turks and the genocide. And my grand, my one grandmother, her whole family was killed. And so you think, I wonder what that story is. And you are able to take it to the next step here and go and track it down. You're kept motivated here for eight years. I, I heard you say that it took you two years to compile that index and make sure you got everything that you wanted in there. How did you keep yourself going during those times? I imagine there were there were times when it felt like it was just running dry. How did you keep the motivation to find out your grandfather's full story and then by extension the whole 60th Battalion? Well, it never really ran dry because every time I thought I was finished, I, I thought of another crazy idea, you know, in terms of how to get more information. Because I really wanted the story to be told in the words of the soldiers themselves. And after about four years, I thought I was finished, and all of a sudden this crazy light bulb went on and it was, the idea was so simple I, I almost you know laughed because I didn't know why I hadn't thought of it before but it really was you know even though the soldiers were all dead I, I knew that I had their birth dates you know I, I had their names I knew where they were born and so I reached out to the public through Ancestry and I actually emailed two and a half thousand people over a five-month period to get more information from that, I got 86 personal recollections and letters from 20 different soldiers, which really added to the story, you know. And over half of the people that you emailed or contacted through Ancestry wrote you back, which I found an impressive number. Sometimes you can feel like you send out a bunch of letters and things like that for research. And I know for my wife, Catherine's genealogy work, sometimes it's a little like pulling teeth to get people to respond. Even my own relatives, when I was trying to, well, she was building a nice family tree for my mom's side of the family in Cyprus. We had one cousin helping us. And he said, I'm trying to call this guy. And he's my cousin. I haven't met him, but 
he keeps hanging up on me because he just thinks I'm trying to sell him something or pitch him something, but he just wanted some information. It's hard sometimes to get those responses and get people to share personal things. Sometimes if a relative has passed away, much less your mother and father here in the Great War generation, you may be protective of some of that. So tell us how you honed your pitch so that you could get these important pieces of information and use it to build courage, sacrifice, and betrayal. I think the key thing, though, is the genealogists are very sharing. They're, they're, a lot of them are very willing to help other people. It just seems to be in their nature. So in some ways, I was kind of shocked at the 1,400 responses that I got. But in other ways, I, I, I wasn't. And I think the key thing what I did was, I, first of all, I established my credibility. So I actually talked about the fact that I had another book, which I'd already published, which was Night Madness, which was a story about my dad. And that gave them an opportunity to check me out just to make sure that, you know, I wasn't just someone trying to, you know, steal their idea or whatever. And I found that probably helped a lot to have that credibility, the fact that I was already a published author. And so a lot of them also were very interested in, you know, in having their relative in the book, having their picture in the book, and having their stories told. So, so from that perspective, you know, it wasn't all that hard to sell. And, and so in some ways, I'm not surprised at the 1,400 responses. It must be a great and rewarding feeling. I get it in a very small way here because I'm able to say, here, I have this great book, Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, which I'm looking at here. I always keep it nearby. And honestly, I think I always will keep it nearby because I respect those men in there. I want to remember their stories. I want to be able to mention it now and then maybe in another interview that something in it will make me think back to your work. But for you, it must be great. I'm sure you got some people that were on an age there and thought that their family stories would be forgotten, that their father or mother would be lost to history, that these letters, maybe if they don't have children of their own or anyone who wants them, all that stuff can just go into the recycling bin. And those letters and pictures, I'm, I'm imagining them just being ground up to paste and turned into newspapers or something. And so that must be very rewarding for you as a genealogist who's used to dealing with people who are in the past and maybe can't thank you, to get that connection to people who are still alive and help them be able to pick up this book and say, hey, let me flip to this page and show you who my grandfather or great-grandfather was down the road. It was very rewarding. And what was interesting is even before the book was published, I had several hundred people said they were, you know, they planned to definitely, you know, buy the book even before they even knew what the book was going to look like. Because you know, they, they obviously, you know, wanted their, their uncle or their grandfather, you know, story to, to be told. Uh, it was neat because I actually interviewed a few people, you know, directly one-on-one. -on -one. In some cases, they were in their 90s. And it was this one lady from Vancouver, uh, Audrey. And her dad had fought with my grandfather 100 years ago. So, I mean, how neat is that? Wow. And when she told me that her dad had actually written a personal recollection of the first time the battalion went up to the front lines, I had like chills in my back. Like I could just imagine as a young teenager, you know, the trepidation of how they would have felt, you know, going up to the first line to the trenches, you know, and how scary that could be. She actually sent me an 8,000 word, 10, 12 page typewritten English, like long letter summary of what her dad had typed up. And I must admit, when I saw it, I was almost like salivating. It was just so <laughs> real. Like it just really brought you right into the, you know, the moment of war. And I asked Audrey, I said, do you mind if I include this in the book? And she said, sure, no, I'd love you to include that in the book. So there's 8,000 words from this one guy, Private Cecil Bradford, that's actually in the book. 
It makes me think of Lori Gwen Shapiro, who I interviewed about her book, The Stowaway. And she goes and she's looking for Billy Garonsky mm -hmm. or the story of him. You see if he had children or relatives who are still alive. And so she just starts calling. And she says, like, up and down the eastern seaboard, because he's this kid from the Lower East Side who stows away right. for the Admiral Byrd to Antarctica. And she says, I call and I don't, I, no one says anything. And I'm kind of used to be, being hung up on by this point or people saying, no, that's not my relative. Cause imagine her pitch, right? Uh, but did you know a Billy Gronsky stowed away to Antarctica, you know, in the, in the, before the Great Depression? And she said, there wasn't an answer at first. And she said, I almost hung up because I thought, oh, it's just a yeah. deadline. And there was this weak elderly voice and the woman said, hello. <laughs> and I made my pitch, you know, like you had your pitch. She yeah. made hers. Yeah. And the woman said, that was my husband. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, that's cool. And the cool thing about Lori is talk about authors, tenacious history. People wanted to get those artifacts. Lori doesn't even drive. And she said, but I managed to get myself from the Lower East Side all the way, <laughs> all the way up to Maine to get these things. She's actually touring Canada right now oh, cool. with her daughter, but she, she finds a way to get around. She says without, without the car. And I got up there and she had scrapbooks and she had pictures and she had old newspapers. Oh. And it meant so much to her in her mm -hmm. older age to say, you know, I was hoping someday somebody would come for these and tell my husband's story. And so there it was. And that's just such a wonderful feeling. And for me, as I said, I want to refer to courage, sacrifice, and betrayal like that. And I want to tell somebody who maybe has a story up in Canada in this particular book, but anywhere, to say that those books are out there. That information is out there about your family, and in this case, about such a pivotal event of the Great War and about a bunch of guys who – they really experience the full range of these things. You know, this may just sound like a catchy title for a thriller, Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, mm -hmm. but they really experience all of that. That's really something that lives with you throughout this book. So it's not just reading a, a list of individual stories. It's a thread, and they become the story. They become one unit. They become a band of brothers. They do. And they, they experience do. all of those things together as they're living through life and death, fighting Germany in the Great War. They do. And one of the wonderful experiences I had was that there was one lieutenant. I was doing some research on him, and I found 56 pages of letters in the New Brunswick Museum. And when I was going through the letters, the last two pages, I looked at the top of one of the letters, and it said, uh, sent letters by the sea. And I said, that's kind of really weird. I said, my grandmother came from there. And then I started reading the letter, and all of a sudden, I, I just got so excited. It was actually a letter that my grandfather had written to this lieutenant's sister, he had been killed, actually, at the Battle of Hill 60, and she had written to my grandfather asking the circumstances and what had happened to her dear brother. And this was a, my grandfather's response to this young lady. And I even found out that my grandfather had been offered a commission as a lieutenant after he'd been seriously wounded at the Battle of Hill 60. But in the end, he reflected upon it and decided to continue to work at this local hospital, a military hospital, as an X-ray technician. So I, I didn't even know this letter existed. And you know, I never had found any letters that my grandfather had written. Wow. And the, to find this one in the New Brunswick Museum was just kind of crazy because my, my grandfather was from Montreal, wow. you know, not even yeah. the same province. Wow, it just happened to end up there. Somebody saved it, never knowing they'd make the connection. How great is that? Yeah, 
that, that was like crazy. I always say you never know when history's going to be watching you. It could be some little small thing that you don't know. And here he takes the time to write that letter. It's important to him. And it ends up making its way to you. So it makes you think about what we leave behind. And for me, as a writer, it makes me think about the times that I might have spelled things wrong and mispunctuated. But well, yeah. but it's it's something you were able to find that. And there's so many things like that. You really can feel... Almost people like to personify history and say history is watching, like it's Dave down at the barbershop checking out your new haircut. But it really does feel like a force sometimes when you hit this critical mass in card sacrifice and betrayal where you get new ideas, ways you can come out the project. And so it just starts to take on a momentum of its own. It does. I mean, another thought I had was A.Y. Jackson, who is a famous Canadian group of seven artists. He actually was a private. He had enlisted at age 31 as a private because he felt he had to do his duty, although he was a cynic about, you know, the military and the military authorities. And I started thinking, well, I wonder if he wrote anything. And then there was this professor who had written some thesis on him. So I contacted him, and I was able to turn up eight letters he wrote, actually, when he was part of the 60th Battalion. And his letters are just absolutely marvelous. You just get a whole different perspective, you know, from a a more mature soldier who's more sort of artsy inclined, you know, than maybe a military inclined. It was great to get his letters. And, and there was also a, a Baron Shaughnessy's son who also served. And unfortunately, he was killed very early, you know, in March of 1916. But I found these beautiful love letters between him and his wife, who was in London at the time, expecting their third child. So Again, when you read these letters back and forth, and, and then the tragedy of when he's killed, it just makes it all more poignant. And you say about how it might have been more artistically inclined, and it makes me think, here this whole generation had to put down what they were doing, interrupt their lives, and go off maybe maybe to give their lives on the Western Front for Canada, for the king, for a country that wasn't even fully their own yet, and yet they did it. And I think of that today. What, what, who knows what we would have had if we had a generational war like this? I mean, some whole towns are wiped out in the UK, just the way that they raised regiments back then, the way that they, yeah. they would bring everyone. You'd all go down to the enlistment office. You'd enlist together. You'd fight together. For the guy next to you and the guys next to you, you might have known your whole life, and they could all be wiped out in a gas attack. The idea that here you bring them back restores them. It gives them their names and their dignity when you – mentioned Hill 60. And when I was reading about Hill 60 in the book, I thought, here's a place that doesn't really even have a name. It's just a spot on the map. And we're familiar with thinking of the Great War that way. I think about, as I say in the Black Adder, moving General Haig's drink cabinet 40 feet to the west. <laughs> it's it's terrible, but it's, yeah, it's yeah, how exactly. you thought of it. And I thought, rather than have these just be a smear of faces, mm -hmm. you bring us inside it. When I interviewed John McNary up at the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum in Brandon, Manitoba, he described the Battle of Vimy Ridge as the moment that Canada does come into its own as an adult nation. And it starts to make its own contributions in World War II then. It decides it's going to do something like this. It's going to train flyers for the Allied war effort before the U.S. gets in, for instance. Right. And they don't have the population where they're going to be throwing everybody into the trenches, unfortunately, which is how it works out at this meat grinder. What will readers of Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal learn about the 60th role in that defining moment 100 years ago that will make people hear the 60th division and not just think of it generically like the way you might think when you hear the name Hill 60? Well, I think the first thing it's important to recognize that the, uh, the Battle of Emmy uh, Ridge was actually a, about a four-day battle. A lot of people just think it was a, a one-day event, but it wasn't. 
and it really uh, included the participation of all four Canadian divisions for the first time under the command of uh, Sir Arthur Currie, who was the top sort of Canadian military guy at the time in the field. So, I mean, in, in one way, you know, the 60th Battalion was just one of 48 battalions that took part in that battle that day, in which over 11, there was over 11,000 casualties. But what is really interesting and neat was that on day four, almost into day five, you could say the Battle of Vimy Ridge, it was actually, you know, the 60th Battalion that actually liberated the, the village of Vimy and Petit Vimy, which were sort of on the crest or the other side of the, of the ridge. So it took them actually four days before they actually got to the the the, uh, the villages of, of Vimy and Petit Vimy. So the, actually in day one, they were actually in reserves, and their role really was to move up quickly and to occupy the German front lines and to redig them out because they'd all been smashed to pieces by you know shell fire. By day four, they were actually leading the pack and actually were were able to capture those two key villages. You say eleven thousand casualties there, and I usually try to put that in my head, in perspective of something we can visualize. You think about the arena in Winnipeg, where the Winnipeg Jets play, since we're talking about Canada, and I was just talking about Manitoba, mm-hmm. 15,000 people. So you picture almost every one of those people either being killed or wounded or being taken off on a stretcher, maybe being blinded in a gas attack. When you think of those numbers, they're just so overwhelming. And I always want to try to bring that home, especially in the Great War, because you're dealing with such huge numbers. But each one of those 11,000 is somebody's son, somebody's brother, somebody's husband, you know, somebody's father or grandfather in your case, Sergeant Edward Lewis Pivas. In addition to him and your great uncle, Stanley Pivas, there was a Lieutenant Charles Henry Mainwaring in the 60th. That's the first cousin of my wife, Catherine's grandfather, Private James William Mainwaring. And I feel like I'm very familiar with him because his picture hangs right in the hallway outside of our bedroom. He's wearing his uniform. I've heard stories about him, stories like the ones you collect here in Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal. In fact, that's how the two of you got connected, how you and I now are speaking. Right. You have many photographs like that in Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal. How did you go about paring those down when you start getting them through Ancestry? How do you pick one over the other and try to help them tell the story? Well, the, the interesting thing is that we didn't part any of them down. The objective that I personally had, and, and actually I have to give credit to, to both publishers, you know, in Hellion in the UK and ECW Press in Toronto, was that we, we decided that no matter the quality of the picture, because in many cases it was 20 or 30 pictures with a quality normally wouldn't meet up the normal publishing standards. But we felt it was so important to put you know, faces to the names and to recognize the individuals that we decided to put all of the photographs that we, that we were able to actually obtain uh, in the book. So I actually found about 220 photographs of individual soldiers that went into the book. And I was quite, you know, adamant that I didn't want any one of those to be lost, even if the quality wasn't great. In some cases, they came from newspapers, so, you know, you can imagine the resolution, you know, wasn't the best. But I really have to give kudos. You know, we all had the same objective, which was try to immortalize the memories of as many of the men as possible, not just, in, obviously, in pictures, but in their stories, you know, in, in the story that, that's encouraged sacrifice and betrayal. It's all the more worthy of noting and praising because publishing is a business. And if the book can't be published for a price and can't turn a profit and people aren't going to get it, then 
it can't be put out there. You can write the greatest book in the world, but if it's $65 for a book, you're going to cut down on the number of people who want it. And yet they work with you here. And as I'm reading it, and as I've expressed a couple times here, I want to stop at those pictures and look at at these men's faces and read the names beside them and remember that that is a real person or was a real person and that they had all the same dreams and hopes and plans for the future that anybody would have. And I enjoyed that. I also enjoyed another detail that you include that does cost when you're going to print up a book, when you have to typeset all of these names. You included all of their signatures very early in the book, just signatures of the men. And even from that, you can get detail about their lives a little bit. How did you decide to include those details there? And when you look at them now, having completed Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, what do you see as the faces behind the names? Well, the names actually was very easy. I did this for my first book, too, where I actually had the names of the, the bomber crew that my father flew with, and they were underneath sort of the acknowledgement or the dedication of the book. So I did the same thing here for this book, where the 20 soldiers that had provided the 86 personal recollections and letters, I wanted to give them some special recognition, you know, in terms of the fact that they had made a significant contribution to courage, sacrifice, and betrayal through their actual words. So 40% of the words in my book are actually in the words of the soldiers themselves. Mm. And those words came from those 20 soldiers that are under the dedication in the book that I put their actual uh, signatures. I mentioned the age, how young many of these men were, perhaps none younger in Card Sacrifice and Betrayal than Private Robert Osborne Dorman. He tries to enlist at just 14 years of age in November 1914. Look back at some of the propaganda posters and recruiting posters that there's the beaver marching side by side with the lion representing the British Empire. Tell us a little bit about that young man. Robert's story is pretty interesting, and, and I just love his poems. I actually have about 10 of them in my book. He tried to enlist, or he didn't enlist actually at age 14. Obviously, you know, like any parent, you know, they said, no way. <laughs> so his mother objected, and she got him honorably discharged. But the amazing thing, which kind of really blows my mind, is like four or five months later, he turned age 15, and he wrote his mother this awesome poem called The Argument. And based on this poem, she actually let him, you know, she didn't go back to the authorities and say, you know, my son's only 15 now. She actually, you know, let him carry on. He actually enlisted at age 15. Of course, he declared his age as 18 because you couldn't be in a combat zone unless you were 18. Mm -hmm. So Robert, he just wanted to go, basically. And I don't know if you want me to share the poem with you, but it's, it's really kind of cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you to read it, actually, because here we go. I mean, let's hear the actual voice as close as we can get to it of a 14-year-old who decides he's going to ship off to the Great War and why. So here it is. It's called The Argument. It says, Hello, Mother. What do you know? I enlisted today. I said I'd go. Yes, I mean to do my little bit. Afraid? Why, Mom never thought of it. Oh, I know it's true, all that you say. Only 15 and going away. But age don't count. It's the heart within, the courage to lose, the faith to win. So come now, Mother. You mustn't cry. Other boys have joined, so why not I? It won't last long, please understand. Then I'll come home to the things we planned. Remember, Mom, what you have often said, the little house all painted red, a garden filled with lovely flowers, where we plan to spend such happy hours. I know how much it all means to you, dear, but really I couldn't be happy here when I know that every mother's son is badly needed to man the guns. So cheer up, Mother, don't take it so hard. You wouldn't have your son branded a coward. Come smile through your tears and think of the day 
when I'll return home to be with you always. I can't imagine writing that now. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> no, I know. And and some of his other poems are even more amazing, you know, just in terms of uh, how he expresses, you know, experiences and stuff. You have to have a way with words, I think, to convince your mother to let you go and do this and to potentially lose you, to have her sign off on it, to have her not stop him. That's something that really brings this guy to life. And you say, what a life these people lived. What what a purpose that they had and what a sense of duty that he had that he decides he's going to go over there at that young age, an age when today we wouldn't even think of it. You know, we wouldn't think of having anyone. I don't know that there's any 14-year-olds anymore who would want to go off to war and, and fight. No. We uh, extended childhood quite a bit beyond the teens, it seems. And here's a young man in courage, sacrifice, and betrayal that left at least his words behind for us to be able to read. And I love that you put that in, so I, I definitely wanted you to read it. No, I appreciate that. And and the good news, well, the good news is that Robert survived the war. The bad news was he was actually wounded at the Battle of Hill 60. And I think primarily one of his injuries was shell shock. Uh, and they actually, in those days, they called it sometimes, di- he was diagnosed with disordered action of the heart from the, the shock waves, you know, from, from the explosions. And, and he did stay in England, you know, for another few years, and, and he actually returned to Canada in 1919 with a wife and two daughters. So that that was kind of awesome. You know? How long did he live? Well, he lived until 1962. So he actually lived for almost another 50 years after he was wounded. And I, and actually, when he came back to Canada, he lost one of his daughters who was four, but they had another five daughters and two sons. So it was quite a large family, and he was pretty happy you know, with his life in Canada. I mentioned the title of the book a bunch of times, Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal. And as we're talking, I'm looking, continually drawn almost to the two men that are in the trench there on the cover and looking at the typeset on the bottom. It it fits so well. Those those three words are pretty much the same number of letters. So that's really fits perfect. It's very and they're very engaging, I would say, is the word for them. They look like they might just both start speaking to you. Describe that picture and where it comes from and and what it says to you as the author, what you wanted to say to us as readers. First of all, in in the title, I really was trying to capture the essence of the book, you know, in terms of the story. So Courage really talks about, you know, there was 26 different 60th Battalion soldiers that were awarded, you know, a military decoration for bravery in the field. And Sacrifice really talked about 599 of the soldiers that were killed either while the battalion was in existence or after it was disbanded. And the key thing was the betrayal aspect, that there was a lot of political dissension between the provinces as to the number of battalions that should be in the field that were represented by a particular province. So it was really a, a battle between provinces to get their own representation you know, in, in, on the front. And Quebec and B.C., had too many battalions raised relative to their ability to reinforce them going forward. And Ontario and Nova Scotia were underrepresented. So what happened was they ended up actually disbanding after the battle, right after the Battle of Emmy Ridge, which is kind of ironically, they actually broke up the 60th Battalion. It was replaced by an Ontario uh, battalion called the 116th Battalion. But in terms of the picture itself, you have the commanding officer on the front cover. He was the only commanding officer of the battalion. And what's great is in, in the book, there's 35 of his letters. that you really see the battalion's experiences through the eyes of the commanding officer and all the concerns he has to obviously deliver on his objectives, military objectives, and yet at the same time protect his men. 
And what's really fascinating is that there's a, another soldier, quite younger, sort of looking a little pensive behind the commanding officer. And I, unfortunately, I, I can't identify who he is, but I, I'm assuming he's the commanding officer's Batman. And a Batman was someone who helped to keep the officer's uniforms clean, helped him to make sure he ate properly, and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I'm sure the commanding officer, you know, out of respect for this Batman, asked him to be in the photo. And what's interesting was the photo was actually taken by, I think it was a nephew of a very famous separatist politician in Quebec at the time. I think it was Papineau. And I don't have the first name in front of me. But basically, so it was sort of a very historical photo. And it's a real photo. It's actually taken, you know, in front of the commanding officer's dugout, I think, in 1916. Really looks like it could have been taken today with an Instagram filter. They look just so alive. And you want to pick up the book and hear their stories. They look like two guys that have something to say to you, don't they? They do. I, I, I love the I love the cover. I actually suggested this cover to the publisher. But when they were asking me about the back of the book, you know, they said, well, what would you like to see in the back of the book? I said, look, I said, you know, I spent eight years writing this book, and my real initial motivation was to tell my grandfather's story. So I asked him, I said, could you please have a picture of my grandfather in the back of the book. And it turned out his picture is actually bigger than the guy in the front, so it's pretty good. <laughs> He'd be pleased. For sure. And probably shocked, because my grandfather was a very humble person. He never talked about his heroics. And even though he would sometimes tell you little stories, they were all sort of like, you'd always put it in the context of, you know, he was just lucky. There was one time when his battalion was on the front lines and they were relieved by another battalion. And they marched out to the reserve lines. And two hours later, the Germans blew up all the front lines. They, they would actually uh, dig mines underneath the enemy's uh, front lines and then blow them up. So he only survived because they were relieved two hours earlier than, than the explosion. And if listeners, as you're there, you're talking about his batsman. There's a song by Mark Knopfler, Remembrance Day. And I believe he donated it all to a, a British charity to care for veterans. I can't remember the exact charity, but there are lyrics yeah. standing at the crease. The batsman takes a look around. The boys are fielding on home ground. The steeple sharp against the blue when I think of you. And I always wonder if modern people will get the term batsman in there because we're all used to the comic book Batman. Yeah, but of course. <laughs> it reads very much like this picture. And that's what that image brings to mind like there at the moment. It's just such a snapshot in their life. And I hope that people will, will check out the cover because I think that'll be a great gateway. It's an art to pick the right typeface and the right picture to get people to want to pick up a book and thumb through it and then take it home. So I wanted to give a little bit of attention to what people will see and what that promises from the cover. For sure. I, I, I Personally, I've had a lot of people tell me they love the cover. We're speaking with Richard Pivas about his book, Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, the story of the Victoria Rifles of Canada, 60th Battalion, in the First World War. For more on our guest, visit richardpivas.com, where you can enjoy a video trailer for Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, or follow him at Richard Pivas on Twitter. That last name, like his father and grandfather before him, is spelled P-Y-V-E-S. The Winnipeg Free Press writes of Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, quote, Richard Pivas has set a new gold standard for regimental histories. Demonstrably, Pivas's work shows that many histories of the First World War battalions need to be rewritten. 
So Hale and the 600,000 men from Vancouver to Halifax needn't fear being forgotten in the 21st century. Rick, first you'll have to tell us who Hale refers to there, since unfortunately I have forgotten him. Talk also about those soldiers in the rest of Canada that the Free Press mentions there in their great review. Bring us back to the topic of betrayal and who the men were that were being betrayed when they do dismember the 60th Battalion. I think it's important to understand that most battalions are almost like a family. And a lot of times you talk about the esprit de corps of a battalion or a military unit. And so they really fought for each other. And, you know, the commanding officer, when he found out that the battalion was being disbanded really for political reasons, even though he had a very efficient military unit, he was furious. And the soldiers were mad, too, because from their perspective, well, the soldiers give them the ultimate sacrifice in terms of being killed in battles in 1916 and 1917, as well as thousands that have been wounded. And they felt betrayed, the fact that, you know, they belonged to this family, and all of a sudden it was being disassembled and sent to about three or four other battalions. So from their perspective, it just didn't seem like the right thing. And who did Hale refer to in their review? Hale is one of the 600,000 soldiers that fought with the Canadian Expeditionary Force. He wasn't actually a 60th Battalion soldier. Yeah, they're talking, they say all First World War battalions need to be rewritten. So they're telling the other historians up there in Canada and and, uh, around the English-speaking world, they've got some work to do now to (laughs) to live up to the job you've done in courage, sacrifice, and betrayal. Exactly, exactly. You also describe the men having very human reactions when they hear that this— place that's been their home, their brothers, their family overseas is being disbanded. They start shouting, no, no, they're shocked, they're upset, disappointed, all of those emotions, angry, I'm sure. Share with us those feelings of the men who'd fought and bled and died side by side in the trenches when they learned they're being split up and how you first came across that. Did you know that going in in the beginning or are you living with these guys following their stories and then you realize in short fashion that their fate is to be split apart from each other because of political concerns? Well, when I actually started writing the story, I didn't know that the battalion had been broken up after Vimy Ridge and I, and I didn't know it was for political reasons. So these were new insights that I learned as I did my research. And I know from the battalion war diary that Gascoigne, who was the commanding officer, you know, was very frustrated. And he even had a number of exchanges with letters from his brother talking about the possible breakup of the battalion. And he met with the Prime Minister of Canada. He met with the commanding officer of the Canadian Corps. He met with a lot of politicians, you know, trying to make sure that this didn't happen. So from his perspective... It was a shock, actually, when they after the Battle of Vimy Ridge, when when they actually broke the battalion up, and it was a shock to the men too. So I mean, they they also were very disappointed. And the other thing was that there's an address that Gascoigne gives, which is recorded in the battalion war diary, and you can see he really wanted to go out and embrace the men and shake their hands, but he couldn't because he was so emotionally disturbed, angry about what had happened that he had to basically turn around and leave after he did his speech. And the sad part was as he was looking over the over 700 soldiers who were all battle-hardened veterans, almost 300 would not make it through the rest of the war. 271 soldiers were killed in action after the battalion was broken up, and many, many more that were wounded. Obviously, he hoped they were all going to survive and get, and get home, but the reality was that wasn't going to be the reality of it. 
What was the average age of the men that are serving there? I would say early 20s. The youngest that was killed in action actually was 15 years old. The oldest that was killed in action was 46 years old. But most of the soldiers that were killed in action were in their early 20s, like anywhere from 19 to 21, 22. The age ranged quite a bit. Well, and the ones whose age we know, I mean, you, you just mentioned Private Dorman lying about his age to get in. Yes. Kathy's grandfather did the same thing. He was 17 and lied and said he was 18 because yeah. that was the age you, you had to get in. And it seems incredible that you'd go through all that and then have your life snuffed out. And that's why I think it's so important to remember because 17 years, I mean, you get to a certain point in your life and I sure you do too, as a man where you say, you know, I have sneakers as old as some of these yeah. people that I'm, that I'm seeing in my office. <laughs> and <t-shirt>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. And my, my friend Keith says that we had an intern and he said, you know, my wrestling shoes are older than, than the intern that we have, you know, you get to a point where you're not wearing yeah. those all the time or your, your dress shoes. And so the fact that you can pack a, not just a life, but a life of service into it is something makes me anyway, want to meet the men in courage, sacrifice and betrayal, because there are always people that you can't know personally, but you can read their stories and you can b- absorb a little bit of them and become a better person for it. We have the signatures in the book, we have the pictures, but when you're doing research like this, you usually come across maybe a line, maybe a story. You mentioned the batsman here Mm -hmm. on the cover whose name is lost to history, and we can't guarantee that that's him. Were there any stories that you wished you could have followed the train to the end, but the information just had been lost to history? Any one line of somebody's service, their heroics, their suffering there in the war that you said, I wish I could know that person's name so that I could add their story to the story of the 60th Battalion. What's interesting is, and, and this is kind of a crazy one in a way, but there was actually one soldier on the way over to England, you know, to train and then to go into the front lines. The battalion issued a little uh, sort of a three or four page document. It was called, I think it was called the Silent 60th. But anyways, and, and in there was a poem that someone had written. And unfortunately, the author wasn't identified. And, and it's actually a neat poem because it's called My Dugout. It's a bit humorous. And, and, and a, you know, in an event, obviously, that was terrible in many ways in terms of the number of casualties and deaths and stuff, this poem just kind of brought a little bit of laughter to me when I read it. And I wished I tried to track down the author of this poem, but I couldn't. But, and, I, it, and, and it sounds kind of crazy, but I, w- I would have loved to have known who the author was of that particular poem. Just be able to say the name uh, aloud and be able to credit the work. So those are frustrating, but you were fortunate. You found so much. We don't want to focus on what the book doesn't have, well, I, sure, I would like to sure. say, but it's good to know. Yeah. It's good to mention that you can only put so much in, and some people had ends that you just can never know. That's for sure. In that swirl of the past century, not to mention that fog of war and the explosions and the impossible records to keep with so many men dead and wounded, the stories of the Great War overall, the story of the whole conflict, are often lost in our busy lives and in part, as one historian described it to me, at the time these veterans would have been writing down their memories a generation later, World War II had exploded. So it was right back into the thick of things. We'd had the Great Depression, and there just wasn't time to look back and write your memoirs. And then because we have much more video and we have a much bigger, as far as geography and the death toll, conflagration in the Second World War, that tends to be what people focus on, and we don't look back too much farther than that. 
Add to that Canada's low profile, and it's a recipe for being forgotten completely. How do you hope readers of Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal will come to view this defining moment and the service of these men in a new light after they read through the book that you've written? Well, what I really think is that Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal will provide readers with a perspective on what their great-grandfathers, grandfathers, and great-uncles went through in World War I. Because there's just so many different aspects you might not even think about. For example, artillery, you know, you all think of World War One, and you think of going out over the, over the uh, trenches, you know, charging across no man's land. The reality was that a lot of the military activity was artillery. Uh, over 60% of the casualties in World War One were from artillery, where the frustration to the soldiers was they couldn't really respond, except for obviously their own artillery in terms of counter-battery fire. So that's a factor. If you read the war diaries, you know, you, you see day after day, we had 45 high-explosive shells, you know, dropped in our zone today and, and stuff like that. Gosh. So it's just something you, you don't really think about so much. You always have this perception of hand-to-hand fighting and, and stuff like that. So what the book does is it really brings you into the moment of war, but through the eyes of the soldiers themselves. And you see there's a human side to war, not just the killing side of war so nice that they did leave records behind. You were able to track them down and fill in some of those blanks. I know that and I keep thinking of my wife's grandfather and all the things that he wrote down. And often days he would just write in his diary, bad grub. And you'd say, come on, give me a little bit more, you know, when you read it. And it probably was grubs. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, could have been. Well, it's interesting. He he never ate. She had mentioned to me in passing that he never ate canned tomatoes. He hated yeah, tomatoes, sure. period. Yeah. Yeah, and then we went over to London uh, several years ago now. Mm-hmm. We saw War Horse, which yeah. was great to yeah. see it in the original there, the play. And they advertised another great war play, and we thought, well, well, maybe we'll see that. We just saw the brochure, but it had closed by then. But on the set, they just had a wall of canned tomatoes. <laughs> and I said to her, see, I said, that's why your grandfather well, never wanted to touch another, another tomato, yeah, right? You, one of the things I worry about as a sort of a historian is that a hundred years ago, you know, the primary means of communication was letters. And actually, letters would get to the front sometimes in two or three days. I think when the letter postal service peaked during the World War One, it was like 10 million letters a week were actually being delivered to the soldiers in the front lines because people would write multiple letters. It was kind of crazy. And I worry today, you know, in, in today's history that with the digital age, that I'm not convinced that you're going to find emails that I wrote a hundred years from now or tweets. I just don't think it's the same thing as an actual physical letter that you can find somewhere in an archive. It makes you wonder what will become of all that. And then you have this one letter from your grandfather. You were fortunate to get that. And maybe we'll only have that. But I I can't imagine the last time that I'd written a letter. So somebody who is as old as our favorite T-shirt or our wrestling shoes, (laughs) how old are they going to be? You know, They're never going to write anything down by hand. And so what records are you going to have if you don't have it digitally? And that's one reason why you did what you did and went and talked to actual people because you could still get the stories. We could still talk to the next generation and the one after that, Mm -hmm. like we're talking about here, having your grandfathers tell you stories. And because I didn't have a grandfather, both my grandfathers passed away, I wasn't able to get those World War II stories. I know that they had an experience. I know some of it. You can look on the paper. But those one-on-one talks, we always think to go interview the veteran. But I just thought it was great here that – 
you decided, let me go ask the people who were told the stories. And that tells you something too. You remember what your grandfather told you. And and that adds a whole new level to this. It makes it not a first person account, but it makes it as if somebody is saying, hey, I heard about this grandfather. And through those stories, your grandfather can come to life for me as an author. You're bringing him to life for me. My wife will be able to tell me about her grandfather and I can see something like those tomato cans. And it's really a great gift you've given to the people of Canada, but to everybody who cares about the war and cares about history here in Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, because we can meet those guys. We'll never be able to meet a Tommy in this life. We'll never be able to meet this is somebody who fought in the war for Canada or on that Western Front, but this is the next best thing. We can we can meet someone who met them. You know, shake the hand who shook the hand, they used to say in the Civil War and in these days. Right. Shake the hand that shook the hand of Lincoln. Well, you can, <laughs> you can shake hands here sort of through reading this book. I just love that you cared enough to go through that and ask people to share their stories. Yeah, that definitely an important part of putting the book together. And one of my motivations, to be honest with you, in writing the book was to capture those stories before they're gone, because now you're seeing that even the, the grandchildren of these soldiers that fought 100 years ago are starting to disappear. And so it was really important for me to try to reach out to as many people as possible and talk to them you know, about their personal recollections. And what I found interesting, even amongst me and my three sisters, was that each of us had different perspectives or different pieces of information on the same story. So like when I was talking about my grandfather being wounded by a German grenade, you know, at Hill 60, one of my sisters said, and you know, his boots were blown off, you know, his feet. And I went, what? Like, you know, like I said, <laughs> they were, you know? So, I mean, each of us, had different memories of the stories that he told and I was able to take all those factors and put them together to get the whole picture basically. And it's a conversation that you might never have had otherwise. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, sit down and compare notes. You, you, you think you know everything, you know, that someone told you, but the reality is, you know, you're younger, you know, you're quite young at the time. And, and sometimes it helps when four different people have listened to the same story from different angles, you know. Yeah, because you usually in, in the course of your life, you would say, oh, did grandpa ever tell you the story about X? And you would say yes. And that's as far as it would go. Not, hey, let's compare how he told it to you and how he told it to me. You might have been different ages at the time. And he might have thought, for instance, that some details weren't appropriate for you. You didn't want to, didn't want to scare right. you. Or you just didn't want to share them then. Right. And I know I always wonder when Kathy will tell me she's working on a, a family tree. And I'll say, how do people not know? History begins when we're born and we assume it's only us. But I know because my grandfather's or my grandmother's whole family was massacred and she was an orphan. And then my grandfather wasn't much better off also from Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. I don't know back that far. You only know rumors. And she said most people only know back maybe three generations. If they're lucky, they'll know to the great grandparents. But that's about it. And that, those are the kind of things that you can help to nail down. And I hope that there's many people, and I bet there are, that you'll continue to hear from that say, wow, I, I couldn't believe it. I looked for my last name and I found it in the back of the book, that index you put so much work into. Well, it was interesting. There was one gentleman, his name was Mike Cunningham, and, and he contacted me after the book, unfortunately, was published. And he had about 15 letters uh. from his grandfather, I think it was, that I looked at him and I went, oh, my goodness. You know, I said to Mike, I said, you know, if I had these letters, I said, I can guarantee you they would have been in the book. And they also had some great photographs. But you know, your publisher has a deadline, you have a deadline, and you just have to move on. But I'm sure this is going to happen, that I'm going to be contacted by people that have more information. And maybe at some point in the future, I can put some more of that in a, to a revised version of the book. But when you find these letters, especially when you find 
not just one, but you find a series so you can start to feel about the person more in terms of their personal experiences. I was just so frustrated that I didn't have those letters before the book was published. Time for a second edition maybe someday. Oh, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't be too tough on yourself because you've preserved so much here in Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal. People can get it, and it would have been frustrating to think of how much we would have lost. You you read the book, and then you think, gosh, if, if this guy doesn't put that effort in, if he doesn't start emailing people or contacting people through Ancestry.com, what could have happened? You know, that, that just all would have been lost. So uh, that's certainly a huge, a huge contribution to the historical record. I want to close by quoting Barry Dumas, who writes in the foreword of Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, quote, you would be hard-pressed to find details of the 60th Battalion mentioned in stories or history books. I know as I've tried, exclamation point, <laughs> unquote. Let's close, since it dovetails so well with that, by having you make a pitch to people who have also tried to find those details on a relative who fought in the Great War or who only dimly know that they have some family connection somewhere and aren't sure how to track it down. Why should they pick up courage, sacrifice, and betrayal to learn these stories of the Victoria Rifles? Well, I think it gives them an overall perspective of what each battalion went through. There's only 50 frontline battalions that actually fought for the Canadians in World War One out of the 250 battalions that were raised. So I think what it's going to do is give the reader an overall perspective of the hardships and the challenges, but still the, the human nature of the soldiers and what they went through. But I'd also like to say that I think it's important. There's, there's an amazing amount of information out there for individuals to look at. And Library and Archives Canada has digitized almost all the World War I records in terms of the battalion war diaries. They have what they call Part 2 Daily Orders, which provides individual information about soldiers in terms of when they're promoted, demoted, were wounded, or killed in action. There's casualty lists. There's the individual military files that have been digitized. They're anywhere from 50 to 120 pages long. I went through almost all of them for the 2,776 soldiers that I wrote about. So that took a lot of work. There's honors and award citation cards that give you information on the circumstances of your relatives uh, being awarded a particular decoration. And there's also local newspaper articles. So, I mean, there's there's just so many different sources. So I would strongly encourage people also, in addition to obviously reading Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, is to go out to some of those primary sources and try to find out for yourself, you know, what happened to your own particular uh, a relative. There's just an amazing amount of information out there. Well, you're listing all the work that you did there just in passing, but it's something that we don't have to do. We don't have to re-walk your same ground. We can pick up Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal. We can get some of this information from you, both online and Twitter. We'll just watch you and see what you're doing. You just pointed us in the right direction. I feel like we could keep talking about this for another hour, but I want people to pick up the book. I want to just whet their appetite, which you've certainly done for a great trip back to the Great War. Richard Pivas, Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, a special book. As I said, I'm going to keep it face out on my bookshelf so we have these two men looking at me and watching me and hopefully give me some inspiration there, share some stuff with them over the years and remember to mention them to other people. It's the kind of book I think that readers are going to want to pass on, tell other people about, maybe give as gifts around the holidays to make people feel like they're connected to that great war generation and bring those soldier stories to life. 
I wish you the best of luck with your book and your continuing mission to highlight this pivotal event, not just in Canadian history, but the history of the world, the history of humanity. We can all get a little piece of it here in your book. And for that, I really thank you for making all that effort. And I thank you for having this great discussion. Again, the book is Courage, Sacrifice, and Betrayal, the story of the Victoria Rifles of Canada, 60th Battalion, in the First World War. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Richard Pivas for joining us and for giving us an inside look at the Canadian Expeditionary Force during the Great War. Visit him at richardpivas.com to watch that video trailer for the book or follow him at Richard Pivas on Twitter. One last time, that name is spelled P-Y-V-E-S. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, on Instagram at The History Author Show, or facebook.com slash historyauthor. Also a plug for the genealogy services we offer through our website. Just click the words Family History Research under the show logo on any page or go directly to historyauthor.com slash familyhistory. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days, if not sooner, for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared When the newsboys yelled extra, war is declared But the hand that held glasses of wine in the air Were the first to hold guns when I rode over there The boys won the war and came home from the fight The last night on Broadway was almost his night But ever since then, it's a different street Gone are the places where the gang used to be We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore